Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Hello, loyal listeners. I'm Dr. Tom Barghese, a general thoracic surgeon at the University of Utah and co-host of Same Surgeon, Different Life. In today's episode, we connect with an amazing leader and one of my favorite human beings in this world, Dr. Shanda Blackman. She's a consultant and professor of thoracic surgery at the Mayo Clinic, immediate past president of the Women in Thoracic Surgery, and current council chair on clinical practice and membership engagement for the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. She is medical director of mayoclinic.org, which has more than a billion hits every year. Additionally, she's the current Secretary of the Southern Thoracic Surgical Association, Secretary of the Thoracic Surgery Foundation, Deputy Editor for the Annals of Thoracic Surgery, and to top it all off, she's an incredible wife and devoted mother to three amazing children. Over the years, what has continued to impress me about Dr. Blackman is a fierce desire for continuous improvement. She is driven to improve our world through excellence in clinical care, cutting edge innovation, education, and robust mentorship and sponsorship. The sponsorship is critically important as that's what goes on beyond the limelight, beyond the splashy headlines or tweets. Sponsorship opens the door for all of us. In today's episode, you will learn about Shanda's background, how she grew up in Georgia, initially pursued a career in fine arts, working in an art gallery while painting herself, and then transitioning to a career in medicine and surgery. We'll explore her incredible journey as she navigated being the chief of thoracic surgery at Methodist Hospital Houston to being the first woman surgeon on staff in cardiothoracic surgery at the Mayo Clinic. We then end with her thoughts about the future. For me personally, Shanda has been a cherished friend and inspirational leader over the years. Join me as we interview Dr. Shanda Blackman on today's Same Surgeon, Different Light. Dr. Blackman, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. It's always an honor to sit with you and talk. Uh, you and I, over the years, have had an opportunity to make life-changing decisions together as we reflect on each other's careers and try to give good advice. 
hopefully we can combine together and give others some good advice on life if they want it. Um, and thanks also for uh, organizing this with STS. I think it's a really important thing that STS is being so creative during these times and finding novel ways to reach out to our membership and our future membership if people choose to enter a career in cardiothoracic surgery. No, that's, that's very kind of you to say that. Uh, all the credit in the world to the, the incredible team at the SDS, as well as uh, specifically the workforce on diversity and inclusion in the SDS, who's, uh, where, where this uh, product came out. Uh, but uh, let's dive in. Uh, Dr. Blackman, uh, what, would you consider yourself a native Texan? Is that, is that who, how you would identify yourself? That's an interesting question. At Mayo Clinic, we get to create a door card that goes by our patient's door so that when we're walking down the hall, we can recognize exactly where all our patients are. And mine is a representation of where I think I'm from. It's a Georgia peach with the text, state of Texas and a longhorn on the inside. So I think I have hybrid <laughs> roots, all That's of great. which come from the South. <laughs> I have never heard of anybody describe themselves as a combination of a Georgia peach and a Texan. That, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, tell me a little bit more about your upbringing. I mean, did you know from an early age that a medical career was in the cards or, you know, how, tell me the decision process of pursuing a career in medicine and surgery. So I did not really imagine that I would ever go into cardiothoracic surgery. I hadn't uh, any opportunity to be exposed to it when I was young. I decided that I would be an artist and I actually got a degree in fine art and worked as a painter for a year and worked in a gallery. And uh, my advice to young people is it's a great idea to fail early, which I did. Um, not everything that you envision in your mind uh, that you're going to do as you grow up works out and you need to be okay with that because if you think you want to do something as a young person and then you get out and you're not as good at it as you thought you were, you really need to be able to pivot. My mother told me that she was running out of wall space after buying so many of my paintings and so I did have to reconsider what I would do and at that point, I reconsidered many things in life and I moved back to Georgia and enrolled into Emory and completed all the classes that I needed to complete an application for medical school and uh, decided to go to, into medicine. I, I got a master's degree in public health to help me figure out what were the other parts of medicine that I needed to know. It was in 1992 when Clinton was becoming president and we were all very keenly aware about the restructuring and reorganization of medicine as we know it. Um, so that's really how that evolved. Yeah, now, um, do you have other family members who are in the medical career or was this, you were really charting uh, your own path forward um, uh, with this decision? So I have an uncle who's a general surgeon and I did spend some time rotating with him after I started medical school. I did ask him for his opinion and at the time he told me not to go into medicine. So <laughs> I think it was a difficult time for general surgeons for a short period of time and I've leaned on him for advice and I think my time with him reinforced that I am for sure a surgeon um, and not of the medical subspecialties. 
Um, but I, I do think that it is important for everyone to make their own decision. You never know where you're going to be led. Um, and I appreciate all the advice that he gave me, even more some of the really frank, honest, hard advice. Now, was his advice purely because of the landscape changes or was he cognizant of all the hurdles that you would face uh, as a woman in the surgical field? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. So one of the most beautiful things that happened when I got to spend some time rotating with him was uh, exposure to uh, two very strong women, one of whom was a chief resident. And they served as an early role model for me because they were incredibly bright, strong, young, determined women. And they gave me an opportunity to see that I might one day be like that. And it inspired me. And to see them performing at such a high level, I found very inspirational. That's, that's amazing uh, that you were able to identify role models so early. Uh, tell me about your path towards uh, becoming part Texan. <laughs> How did that? So you're in Georgia, you went to Emory, and now you land in Texas. Uh, describe that process. Well, I went to many schools in Georgia and did some training in Georgia before I came to Texas. Um, one of the most important things that happened was as I, I went to medical school to be, be a pediatrician and on my different rotations, I found that I was exposed to a lot of different people. Um, I, I got to spend some time on the trauma service with Dr. Feliciano, um, who is a trauma legend and Walt Ingram, who works in the burn unit and Dr. Weaver and Dr. Butler and some of the other people that I work with in med school. And I very quickly realized that I was not a pediatrician, but instead I was more likely a surgeon. So this is now the second time in this interview that we've talked about maybe failing early and pivoting and going into something that you're better suited for. And it doesn't always mean that you're going into something that's not as good. And in my case, I think every time it was going into something that was more difficult, more challenging, but better for me. So once I went into surgery, I thought I would be a minimally invasive surgeon and I got into my surgery training program and I got exposed to other people that really inspired me. And I started doing more and more cardiac cases and felt like that team was the personality of the people in that group matched my own personality. And watching the team approach really spoke to me. And I really enjoyed how everybody in the room, the perfusionist, the cardiac surgeon, the uh, oncologist, the different members of all of those parts of teams, the tumor board worked together and it, it clicked, something clicked and I, I decided I wanted to go into that. And then uh, for your cardiothoracic training and correct me if I'm wrong, you actually had the unique pl uh, privilege of being at Baylor, but also, you know, kind of being adopted by the MD Anderson folks. I, I, meaning that uh, you were uh, part of two legendary families in the world of CT surgery. Is that a correct way of describing that? Yeah, so I, yeah, I came to Baylor to train with Dr. Caselli because I thought I wanted to be an aortic surgeon. And um, I ended up uh, getting the honor and the privilege of training at Baylor. But when I was away on maternity leave, um, the, two, the program of Methodist and Baylor split. And then I found myself at Texas Heart for part of my training because Dr. Caselli had moved his service. And 
being able to experience MD Anderson and again, the team experience, which is very heavily emphasized there. Dr. Vaporjan and Dr. Swisher became primary mentors of mine and met with me on a regular basis to the degree that I switched from cardiac surgery to thoracic surgery. I fell in love with cancer patients. I fell in love with the team approach and ultimately decided that that was what I wanted to do. And then I ended up deciding that I would do another year to get even more thoracic surgical oncology experience and train to do complex esophageal reconstruction like the supercharged jejunum case that I love to do. That's, that's amazing. And uh, I, I do have to make a, a, a momentary comment at this point because I know that you've been saying uh, for a couple of times that, oh, you pivot after failures. For, for the record, I, I personally think Dr. Blackman would have been an outstanding cardiac surgeon. This was a personal decision pivot, <laughs> not because of a failure or anything like that. So. Well, <laughs> yeah, not, not necessarily failure, but just finding, I, I call it following your bliss, uh, really just finding those things that speak to you. And yep. it's not just the circumstance, but it's the people. Probably every time in my life when I've made a correct turn, or gone in a good direction. It's been, it's been primarily because someone inspired me and someone reached down and pulled me up or someone came to me and recognized something that I was doing of merit and gave me good feedback and told me that what I was doing in that circumstance was good. And that's part of how I felt like I was moving in the right direction. And because of that strength of that experience, I try to do that now for younger people that I'm training and working with. I think that being recognized as something that all of us really enjoy and getting a pat on the back or a word of encouragement or some constructive criticism to move in a good direction is something that all of us can use. And we all need mentors, but I think we also need sponsors. And having people who bring you underneath their wing and uh, look out for you throughout your career, that's invaluable. I, I, I think there's no telling what I would have done or not done had those people not come across my pathway. It, it, it's interesting that you uh, made that distinction between mentorship and sponsorship because sometimes nowadays, um, you know, mentorship's gets, getting all the publicity and you see it on the books, but... It's actually the power of the sponsorship. And that a lot of times are the behind the scenes, right? That's not out on yeah. social media or anything like that, but, you know, pulling people along and making sure that they positioning them. Uh, uh, that, that's incredible, incredibly poignant words. Uh, but I, I wanted to tie back to something that you, you said when you were on maternity leave. Um, and I think that for you in all the years that I've known you, uh, I mean, you don't, you know, you being a super mom is part and parcel of your identity. Describe how you were able to navigate that. Because I think a lot of uh, hard decisions are, do you have kids in training? Do you have wait afterwards? The dynamics of that. Uh, it, uh, tell me a, li a little bit about the, the thought process uh, of how you made the decision and how you navigated that. Well, I definitely would never give myself the super mom title. Um, if you're if you're a cardiothoracic surgeon and you're a mother, um, you will never meet the same task as the stay-at-home mother who does everything for their child. 
However, the happier person you are, the better mother you are. And I think the best gift I give my children is the daily dedication to my patients and the love that I give back to the world um, of my craft and what I do, um, as well as caring for my kids. So uh, it's a partnership. I'm very fortunate to have a husband who stays at home and takes care of the kids and tends to a lot of the things that typically a mother does. And it's been difficult at times because the rest of the world doesn't understand that relationship. But if there are other young women that are considering entering a career in cardiothoracic surgery, the most important decision besides choosing to go into your career um, one of those important decisions will be choosing a partner and choosing the right partner who's willing to share any part of that responsibility. Um, and so Matt definitely picks up the pieces that I drop and we work as a team and it's not always perfect. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, stressful, but I would say looking back on 25 years of marriage and 16 year old twins and a seven year old little girl and a dog and two chickens. Um, we, we, I think we're doing okay. We're very happy. We've been secluded together for COVID for, you know, tight quarters for a while. And we all love each other and we all care for one another. And I, I think if I've taught anything to my kids, I've taught them that they're very, very important to me, but they're not always the number one priority. If some, if a patient's really sick and and they need me, I'm, I'm going to take care of my patient. And, and the kids learning that early on, I think is a very important thing. And, and I think I'm a better mother because of the fact that I'm showing them that service and, and, and that daily practice and nod towards other people, not just an introspective nod. And uh, the, the, I can, uh, I mean, you and I have had conversations about this I can attest to the fact that this wasn't easy. I mean, um, correct me if I'm wrong, when your twins were born, I mean, that was a really big challenge. Um, uh, they were born a little premature, is that correct, uh, Shanda? Yeah, so they were born at 33 weeks. And uh, I, I probably worked too hard and didn't hydrate enough and stayed on my feet too much. Um, I actually went into labor and didn't even know I was in labor. My attending surgeon, had to tell me I was in labor and dismiss me from the operating room. So that, although I would also say that's pretty amazing that you can be so excited about something that you're doing that you might not even notice that you're in labor. That's <laughs> yeah. something we would recommend out there to the listeners. Yeah. Well, it's intense. That's the beauty of the OR. You don't even, you don't feel like you have to go to the restroom. You don't feel hunger. You don't feel pain. You just, you're so zoned into what you're doing. It's a, it's a really immersive experience. And I would say there are probably very few other careers out there that are like that, but yeah. So they came early and they were in the neonatal ICU for a month. And uh, one of them was intubated for a week. Uh, it was a very trying time and being a mother and having twins and trying to come back into surgery was also quite stressful. You know, you were, you're, you're worried. Am I going to remember to give the heparin before I go on bypass? Am I going to remember to start the antibiotic or will I, will I perform in a code to the same degree? Because I feel like I'm slightly sleep deprived. Um, actually I haven't slept in weeks. Is that bad? 
<laughs> so it's always difficult when you have a family and a career and both are quite demanding. And I always tell people, you usually can pick about three things and do them well. You can't do everything well. So for me, it's caring for my children. I try not to bring a lot of work home. I try to be fully engaged with them when I am at home. Um, and then when I'm at work, I try to make sure that I have uh, my husband and other people helping with things with the kids so that their needs are met. But it's a really difficult juggle. And sometimes it's done well, sometimes not. But I like to be busy. I don't use a lot of sleep to get through the day. And so I think probably one of the good things is that I've chosen a pathway that does fortunately keep me very busy. I, I think anyone going into this career will struggle with time management and work-life balance. And for me, my life is part of work. And to me, it's fulfilling. And so I'm not trying to do as little work as possible and have as much time off as possible. I am enjoying the work and the home time. So when people say work-life balance, it makes it sound like one is good and the other is bad. For me, both are good and you're balancing two good things. I think that's frequently a misconception. And if you look back at careers of cardiothoracic surgeons, a lot of them don't even want to retire because they enjoy their work so much. So I think there aren't that many careers where people don't want to retire. I, I, I love how you phrase that, that it's not one versus the other, that they're equally important. Now, in all the years I've ever worked in this profession, you are easily one of the most organized individuals I've ever met in my life. Um, and uh, I was, uh, I've had the privilege of listening uh, to your talk about organization a couple different times. Personally, I think there's a billion dollar industry right there waiting, waiting to develop. But tell me how you evolved your method. Like, did you know about that? Like, was that something like you started in med school? Was that something you did in training? Or is that because of the leadership positions and your work as an attending that you evolved that this method that you're using right now? Well, I, that's funny that you should ask. I, I, I think making lists is very important. I have about 20 lists that are around me at any time. Um, we have a wall calendar that sits behind a door that everyone in the family puts their thing on the calendar. And, uh, there's a kindred spirit that's always guided me at different times in life named Tommy Bagwell, who has um, always told me in order to have an under, to, in order to avoid a misunderstanding, you have to have an understanding. And so making sure that everybody's calendar is on the same page and it's a first come first serve, right? So for spouses to adjudicate time equally, um, the earlier you plan, the easier it is to clarify so people don't get their feelings hurt. And we make sure the kids, if they want us to be there, I plan way in advance to be there for my children uh, when they need me. And, and involving them in that decision is really critical. Um, also, I think having people around you that understand who you are and why you do what you do and have this a similar vision and a similar goal I have a nurse practitioner that I am so lucky to get to work with. Um, and Kristen and I organize the day every day. And I have a secretary right now, Margot, who works with me and helps me to stay on task. And we routinely run through lists. 
So I think it's really important to make sure that you run, like I went in early this morning and made rounds with my residents and we made lists of everything we need to do. Giving everyone the why of what you're doing helps inspire them, giving them the freedom and the latitude to creatively find solutions to problems, but really just building a team of like-minded individuals who have the same vision as you to work together. That's what makes you look good. And trust me, I've sort of seen it on both sides. Um, if you don't have that team, you can look equally bad. And it's so important to recognize all the people that help you to, to be the person that you are. Um, it, it really does involve, I think some people call it building a village, other people call it building a team, whatever you wanna call it, it's, it's getting all of the people that help you do what you need to do and, and everybody feeling like their job is just as important because it is. Um, I'm not a very good surgeon if I'm worried about who's uh, doing the virtual learning for my kids every day. And, and I'm not very focused on my daily clinic if I'm worrying about how to get my car repair done and, and the 20 other things that I've got going on. And so it, everyone's job is equally important. And everyone that works to help me do a better job, I hope I also help others to do that. It, it's just being a... a, a maybe a productive cog in the wheel to make the bigger picture work well. And everyone looking for ways to fill in in the cracks to be useful and helpful and, and, and help others to get their goals achieved. What, what an amazing framework. I, I even love that phrase that you don't have a misunderstanding if there's an understanding of I mean, That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I want to pivot now, I'm using your word, <laughs> to talk about your career. Um, your first job was highly unusual. Um, and for the listeners uh, to get, give some description about this, most of us, when we finish training, um, we join or try to join well-established practices where there's a senior mentor that you can learn from, and then we kind of develop our own style, and then we go off into leadership, uh, you know, positions, but you did not choose that. I mean, you chose a position uh, at Methodist Hospital where you had to one, build the practice from scratch and then assume leadership positions as a division chief there really, really early on in your career. Uh, how did you make that brave decision uh, in terms of, I mean, because knowing you, you did not go in there with uh, a naivety. I mean, you knew what, what you were facing uh, in doing so. Well, I think the main reason why I succeeded in that role um, was because I was able to build an effective team. Again, um, I, my sec from my secretary to my PA, Andrea McNeil, to my partner, whom I later hired, Min Kim, um, all of those people had the same vision that I did. I knew going into building a program that I would not have tremendous assistance and it would be twice as much work. Thus, I went over to MD Anderson and did that additional year, knowing that I would have a little bit of the white wall experience where no one is standing there to back you up and no one's helping you if you get a hole in the PA. I wanted to be as good as I could be 
before I went out on my own and did that. Um, that being said, when I was brought into Methodist, uh, Mike Reardon is a very good example of how men can mentor women, how older, more experienced surgeons can help. And he was cardiac, I was thoracic. But upon the day that I arrived, he immediately gave me all of his thoracic cases. He walked me around the hospital and introduced me as, I don't know, he would say things like, this is the future star of cardiothoracic surgery. And he would say all these wonderful things that would make you blush because he was so uh, helpful and encouraging and he was a sponsor. And I can't tell you how effective that is. Um, he would actually call me into the operating room to have me look at something. And I knew that he did not need me. What he was doing was showing the rest of the staff in the operating room that he trusted me and that he valued my opinion or that I had expertise in something. And I always felt like that was one of the key ways that I was able to succeed when I got to Methodist was because he and the other people around me gave me support, encouragement, and sponsorship. Um, and early administrative burden can be a problem when you're starting your career. You, what I sacrificed was early academic productivity. I, I wrote papers and I published and I did research and I kept my appointment at MD Anderson and did a lot of projects with them because the research aspect was a little bit more uh, facilitated, it, it facilitated research a little bit more at MD Anderson than where I was. And so I, I felt like there were sacrifices that were made, but that experience gave me the ability to grow as a surgeon maybe twice as much because I didn't have somebody to call to help. I wouldn't recommend that for everyone, but I would make sure that if others are thinking of early experience with leadership or administrative duties to make sure that you have your clinical practice down to make sure that you focus on first and foremost, putting, putting the patient first and being a very good surgeon. And the most important thing I would say is you cannot be a very effective surgical leader if you are not a good surgeon. And so you have to work on making sure that you have the skills and the expertise and the confidence to manage the situations in the operating room before you try to go manage other people. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, with that, that takes time, correct? Yeah. Because I think we now live in an era where sometimes people don't appreciate the time and the effort and the methodical continuous improvement that it takes for you to get to that level where you are a surgeon that not only delivers, but that everybody trusts. Is, is that a correct way of phrasing that as well? Yes, I think so. Trust is something that happens as an evolution and uh, through experience and good, both good and bad things happening and seeing how you manage those situations. I remember when I first came to Mayo, I had a difficult time um, with building that trust at the same rate that I had it in Houston. I think you know, being one of the early, the first women in cardiothoracic surgery at Mayo, it was very difficult because they had not really worked with a woman in that department. And uh, the shift in the way that I 
spoke to people, worked with people, and tried to manage situations was completely different. And I am so fortunate to have the experience of being able to work in two different places that are equally um, wonderful, but I, I really have appreciated all that Mayo has done. They have taught me so much more about professionalism and emotional intelligence and managing up on all of the teams and the, the teamwork. And I think that's made a huge difference in the way that I've learned, which just goes to show that even though you may have run a division and come from one place and come to another, there's always plenty to learn. And there, there's always an opportunity to remold yourself and stay humble and be comfortable living in that consciously incompetent zone where you will not always be expert and other people have things to teach you. I feel like I go back to school and learn every day. And I think that would be the most important thing that, that has helped to continue to improve and, and gain experience over the years. And that, that was a brave decision that you made because you could have just remained in Houston. I mean, you, you had built up a wildly successful practice. Everything was hitting on all cylinders, but then you saw this opportunity at the Mayo Clinic to even take what you had already done to the higher level. It, was there some pushback, at least like even internally about, should I do this, uh, embark on this new adventure in Rochester, Minnesota? Yeah, it's always scary going into the unknown and going on to the path that hasn't been blazed. But to me, being able to uh, build the teams that I have today to do jejunal reconstruction and to be able to, uh, we, we, together at Mayo, my lab has built a mobile application to follow patient reported outcomes and to be able to uh, write the grants that we've written and, and do projects together and do research and build complex cardiac tumor teams and uh, work with the thoracic tumor board and uh, the esophageal tumor board, being able to have all of these advanced opportunities has really made all the difference. I think having taking that step from being maybe a big fish in a little pond to a little fish in an even bigger pond and trying to learn from other people and swim around in that environment has made me even stronger. And I, I'm really grateful of, of all the experience that I've gained. That's amazing. Uh, I wanted to now um, explore with you um, your thoughts about your leadership experience. Um, for our listeners, uh, Dr. Blackman is the immediate past president of the Women in Thoracic Surgery Group. Um, and uh, also uh, as a council chair uh, in the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Um, for women in thoracic surgery, uh, I mean, obviously that organization has exploded in the sense of, in terms of numbers, networking, uh, diversity, but you were involved with the women in thoracic surgery right from the beginning and the early days when it was probably a couple tables in a small, tiny hall and everything, and you've seen the growth over the years. Can you reflect for us on your experience uh, with the women in thoracic surgery from being a member towards assuming the leadership title about 
what the organization has done and where you think the organization is going in the years ahead? Well, I think women in thoracic surgery can serve as a model for anything, any minority group that wants to be seen as equal within an institution or an organization. Um, I think it's a very good example of how we started in a tiny little room with Carolyn Reed and Yolanda Colson and three or four other women, AJ Carpenter, all standing there talking. And I was the little student and all of, you know, these wonderful women who are strong and intelligent were standing there um, and you're, you're trying to think of something creative to say to them. Um, and I realized that you know, one of the most important things on, on being a minority is, is to try to find a positive spin on it. I, I don't think organizations are really looking for people to run around and complain about how unfair things are and how horrible things might be in certain circumstances, but instead they're looking for luminary people to show uh, the world that, hey, women can do this too, and they can do it sometimes better in some circumstances or equal at least. So I think that it's important to try to be a positive influence and not a negative influence. Um, and, and I learned that very early on. And I got the opportunity to travel around the world and see other places where if we thought that it was difficult to be a woman in cardiothoracic surgery here, um, it might be even more difficult in other places where I had the opportunity to travel. And, and being able to go to places like Russia and Taiwan and uh, Japan and give talks on diversity and what the world looks like uh, in, in the eyes of an American cardiothoracic surgeon and how that might be different from a European cardiothoracic surgeon um, is, is very important. So we started this dialogue around the world and we engaged tiny groups of women in some organizations and huge groups of women in other organizations, depending on their representation. And we gave them skills to uh, honestly be able to compete parallel with men. We met with the leaders of the organizations around the world and told them how to incorporate more women and how to inspire women and how to start these groups and how it begins with cultivating leaders for their organizations so that women see other people like them and helping to facilitate and break down some of the barriers. And I think it's been a very effective program. That was probably one of my most proud moments of women in thoracic surgery was traveling to each of these places and having these women receptions and being able to network with these women and, and learn about their career path and what things have prevented them from moving versus what things have helped move things along. And that's where I would say sponsorship um, giving people opportunity, giving people exposure is really so key to getting more women and minorities in our organization. And how do we prevent um, the bad things that happened in the past from occurring again? And the reason why I say that is, is that you and I both know that power is very corruptive. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, one of the worries I have is we're doing, uh, I, I think we're doing a better job. I mean, obviously there's still a lot of work left ahead to bring people along, build the robust pipelines, but I am worried that, you know, just replacing one bad, you know, 
behavior with a different per person who may look different, but still act the same way, is not really solving the problem. Uh, you know, so how do we navigate that? How do we prevent that from happening, that we are truly embracing true diversity and inclusion? Well, I think that's a, that's a difficult problem, Tom. I, I think, you know, one of the ways to prevent us slipping back is, you know, really by remembering that if the more we have servant leaders, the less likely we are to fall into that position. Finding leaders who focus on having power is not a great way to lead. Um, a true good leader, I think, is someone who will find the gifts and the ideas and the skills of the people around them and let them have the creative license to do great things and stand back and give credit to those people for doing that. Um, a good example of that is when, when I came to Methodist, Dr. Min Kim was hired to be my partner by my choice. I waited four years before I hired him because I wanted to find the perfect partner. And he now leads that program beautifully, I think. He's done a wonderful job. So if we focus on people who can lead and leave the place better than when they found it, and the people that they've trained are then becoming leaders, then you know you have a good system. Um, I, you know, one of my most proud things in life is looking at all of the people that I've had the honor of training that at one point in time, we worked together in the operating room and I happened to be the more senior person, but they probably taught me just as much as I taught them. But now they're leading programs, people like Cy Yenda Murray at Roswell Park and Jay Kim in California and people all over the world and people that I know will be future leaders, uh, Zaid Abdel Sader and Aaron Gillespie and Carlos Puig. I mean, our residents that we've trained that I know will go on to lead programs are going to be the future of our surgery, future of cardiothoracic surgery. That's, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. So I think we don't need to focus on the power. We need to actually get rid of that focus and, and focus on what kinds of people bring other people up and what kinds of people promote other people. And as long as we stay focused like that, then honestly, it really doesn't matter who you are, what the color of your skin is, what your gender is. If we can bring in people who believe that you are good because of what you bring to the table and actually diversity brings more to the table. It's all about bringing people up and creating a better team. And a perfect team is created of people who see things differently, not see things the same. And the more comfortable we get by getting challenged and having people be comfortable to tell us they disagree and they have a different viewpoint, and the more open we are to hearing that, the better we are, I think. That's an outstanding viewpoint. And uh, uh, for the listeners, I've had the privilege of uh, having uh, lengthy conversations with Dr. Blackman over the years on exactly this, that uh, um, just to, to clue everybody in, um, before I took my current leadership roles here, uh, when I was being recruited to the University of Utah, one of the people that I turned to was Dr. Blackman, because I knew that she had experienced a lot of the things that I was trying to process at that period of time. 
And of course, as I'm hoping that people can sense that uh, she's one of my favorite human beings in the world. So <laughs> hopefully that's coming across. In my mind here. <laughs> <laughs> Felix Mitchell, that's great. <laughs> uh, in the few moments that we have left, Shanda, um, any final words uh, to those out there who, you know, this pandemic has been very, very trying on many perspectives, you know, people's plans may have gotten disrupted, people's career paths may have taken a little bit of a sideways step, but you have, you know, navigated a lot of rocky terrain throughout your career, but any words of wisdom or thought process or things that you can, uh, you know, convey to our listeners uh, in our concluding remarks? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I think you should take a copy of the Desiderata and put it on your wall. That helps you focus. Maybe uh, remember every morning when you wake up, maybe put a little sticky note by your bed that helps you to remember. Um, a couple of things that will help you cope with daily stress and get through not just COVID, but life, right? Burnout, everything. Um, Every single day, I, I, before I get out of bed, I try to think of what I'm grateful for. Um, I focus on my kids and my family and my partners and work and the teams that I get to work with and especially my patients. Um, making a list of things that you're grateful for is a wonderful way to start the day. Um, Exercise is always a really good idea. I think a lot of people lose sight of that when they're not remembering how important that is to maintaining your fitness as a surgeon and a human. Um, and then I think journaling is also really helpful to help you reflect on what you were thinking at different times. So I do always carry that with me and write thoughts to help me look back at patterns and have insight into my own weakness and areas where I might need to work on. Um, and then I think, you know, another thing that really is, is wonderful and, and highly uh, encouraged by people who seem to be experts in happiness that I try to do is, you know, they say practicing random acts of kindness and whether that's finding somebody in the hallway that's lost and guiding them and actually physically walking them to where they need to go or holding the elevator for someone or just being courteous on a day-to-day -day basis, I think that really helps. Um, another thing that I really have focused on that I, I look forward to giving my kids one day is every time I have a patient that's grateful that writes a note, I uh, keep it and I write a little thought on the back of it and then I put it in a box and the box says, give to my kids when I die. So when I pass away, um, everything that has any meaning is sitting inside that box and and everything else in the world can be thrown away the degrees the titles the appointments the awards uh, the photographs none of that stuff has the same meaning as really focusing on what you want to leave behind as a legacy for your children and I don't really honestly expect any of my children to sit down and know any of the jobs that I have today but what I would want them to know about me, if they know anything, is what I did for my patients and, and the interactions that I had. So if we stay focused on that, we're going to be just fine. It doesn't matter, ultimately, if Senate decides to cut our pay another 10% or if the hospitals, you know, change in a direction to it, making our specialty a little bit harder. Every single thing that we do is rewarded 
with the patients and the relationships that we have with them. And as long as we stay focused on that, everything will be fine. It's amazing. Um, I have a feeling that this episode, uh, for me at least, will be one that I'll be replaying a few times because uh, this is the Dr. Blackman that I've gotten to know over the years. There's always these pearls of wisdom. And I call them pearls of wisdom because one of the other things that I love about Shanda is that uh, she has her favorite pearls that she wears. Um, like even if you see the New York cover <laughs> article, a photo that she and her team at the Mayo Clinic put out, uh, you'll see her standing there with a fierce look, but the pearls are there. But uh, I, I call them the, the, uh, the pearls of uh, Blackman wisdom in the sense that uh, there's going to be so much we'll be able to unpack from this episode. Dr. Blackman, on behalf of our listeners, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for taking the time to connect this morning. Thank you, Tom. It's, it's an honor to work with you um, on this project and to really get to help STS. I, I think of all the things, all the organizations that I've been a member of, uh, STS has been the one that's the most meaningful and the most rewarding. So thank you to STS for organizing this. Thanks so much. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.